Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast and I'm joined as ever with my wingman uh, Gareth. How are you Gareth? Hi Andy, how are things? Yeah, very good thanks. We enjoyed the weekend. Strange finish of course this week with the Tour Championship finishing on a Monday. A little bit disjointed at the moment aren't we so? Yeah, it's great to have another day's worth of live golf coverage, though, and, and hopefully you'll finish with a little bit of excitement. Yeah, I uh, hope DJ doesn't get too far away. I'm not against him winning um, by any stretch of imagination, but I'd like to see it all get stirred up a little bit and get tighter down the, you know, down the stretch. I think it will. Um, course is playing really nicely. I mean, the greens are superb, and the course is a good test, of course. Um, all the way around, and and, the, and this format, of course, is a is a straight is a strange one of sorts. But um, it, you know, it, it is you know a, a cracking season-ending event, and um, you know, obviously, no tiger this year, um, and no crowds, of course. So, um, yeah. you know, are you a fan of the format, Andy, or not? Um, <sighs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that anybody needs a head start. Um, I'd like to see the flip re- flip report on it. So you know who's who's sitting where and and doing whatever. If there wasn't a uh, you know this sort of ten under lead given, well, it's not a ten under, which is a ten under lead compared to the guys from front to back of the field. Um, yeah, you know. So yeah, I'd love to see where everybody stands if it was a standard format. Um, it'd be quite interesting. I'm sure somebody's done it. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, just to see how comparable it would be. But I'm pretty sure that uh, the guys at the top are, you know, the guys at the top. Um, you know, maybe that's still going to be the case uh, at the end of it. But um, yeah, just seems a little bit of a strange weight to the field, you know, doing it that way. But you know, they're, they're spicing it up, and I actually, you know, in the game of golf, I think we need do need to spice it up. But spicing something up the way they're doing it for 15 million. <laughs> it, you know, does it need spicing up? You know, there's 15 million on the cards. I mean, that's uh, you know, it's a different thing altogether. You know, so yeah, um, but yeah, I get you. Strangely, I'm sitting on the fence a little bit, I suppose. It's um, yeah, but Valderrama, oh my word! Oh, Andy, I love the place. I've had the actual pleasure of playing at Valderrama, mm. and. Just what a golf course, what a facility. And to be honest, it's probably the fastest greens I've ever put it on. Really? Yeah. Ridiculous. I, I was lucky enough I had a caddy when I played yeah. there. Um, and I, I, sadly, I wish I would have played with, with the family members or, or my dad in particular. Yeah. Because um, you can't really appreciate it going around on, on your own. Right. Um, and I got onto the back of the first green and the caddy just said to me, touch it literally put the putter head on the ball and touch it. Really? And I did. I did. And I knocked it off the front of the green. <laughs> <laughs> and all the caddy did is he turned to me and said, welcome to Valderrama. Really? Yeah. They were amazing. It was like putting on a laminate floor. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's... Um, it, I mean, they look quick. And you know, when you've got nerve endings jangling and you know water hazards <laughs> behind the hole um i would imagine it does get um you know a little bit uh, a bit tasty um you know i've played on quick greens played on very quick greens and you know they, they do take a bit of appreciation i like them um 
you know, it's just the differences that you're looking at. But it's 30 feet long and you're trying to hit it three feet, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where's, really where's that for you, Andy? Where's the quickest you've played on? Um, well, I've played on some, you know, some pretty quick greens in the Caribbean. So, you, you know, mm. we get them, we, we could get them pretty quick. Um, the problem that you've got is that you've got grain on, on greens, um, you know, in the Caribbean, especially, uh, you know, the so 20 years ago, we had a, a strain of Bermuda grass that, um, ultimately it would, would decline um, around this time of the year it starts to fade away um, so you would end up getting sort of a 70% coverage um, and we would get greens you know just normally um, you know even if, especially if they were dry but we would get greens normally around about the 12 12 and a half um, wow. but then you get down grain and, and down hill and you know that that twelve just became ridiculous. I mean, it, it, and twelve it didn't stop at twelve. I mean, it just didn't stop. So, so you, you couldn't actually measure it. So it didn't matter where you put the stim meter on the green. You were looking at twenty plus thirty plus feet of rollout. Of course, you know, you flip side that coming back the other way. Um, you know, you get a, a completely different read. But invariably, when they are at that sort of speed, the ball goes up the slope and comes back and past the stint meter. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, you're going across the slopes. You're just trying to find a way to, to sort of measure it. And they just become unmeasurable. Um, so, so, yeah. And you don't have to do anything sort of silly. There's a couple of areas. We, we have one particular green at, um, at Sandals, the 10th green, and it was notorious. The 6th was as well, but... Um, the tenth green in particular um, was uh, was notorious. It probably had a four percent slope from front to back, and then down grain, um, you know, down the exactly down the slope. So it was literally perpendicular to the slope. It was just ridiculous, and it was uh, it was yeah. If you got if we played a tournament, there were literally you know three locations you could put the flag on the green that made the course playable, and apart from that. Um, you know, there were, there were no other pin placements. You couldn't go back left. You couldn't go front right. Oh, sorry, front left. Um, you could get in the middle. You could get to the back right. And you could get front right. But, if, you know, if you were above the hole at any point, you put it off the green if you didn't go in. It was as simple as that. Wow. So uh, I know it might be a bit of a crazy question, but what does make a quick green? Is it the type of grass? Is it the type of seed? Is it the conditions ultimately? Um, uh, it, it, there is the element of the perfect storm. So it's everything comes together. Um, mm -hmm. the, 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 the Ultimately, it's not just the height of the surface. It's the smoothness of the surface as well. So mm -hmm. it ultimately speed comes down to the least amount of friction possible. Um, you know, so the ball, you know, just just keeps meandering. And, you know, and you hope it meanders in in a straight line. So, it, but, it, you know, a grass, the, the, the ball can literally just follow, just it like rolls over the blades of grass. And, you know, mm -hmm. so it can nudge to the left and to the right. And, and that's the element of grain then when you, you know, you, you, it will follow the root of the grain where the grass is actually growing to. So, you know, yes, it follows gravity, but, you know, sometimes the grain is stronger than the gravity, um, you know, pull. And, you know, folk will argue that all day long. But, you know, 
the gravitational pull is constant, whereas the grain element of the grass, um, you know, is, is variable. And some putts will generally start offline if it's cross grain, um, you know, so it jump, let's say the grain's left to right. Um, depending on how well you strike the putt, the ball can jump right just because of the grain pushes it there to start with. Um, and those of our friends in, you know, sort of the warmer climates, um, you know, sort of southern areas of the States and, you know, southern Europe and the like, will will know what that is. Um, mm. <clears throat> and it is literally just getting, you, you have to get the golf ball started on the right line and then the effects of gravity and grain will take on their own course. And, and they're more predictable once the ball's rolling. But it's the initial style was found that um, if the golf ball's rolling, so if you were putting on a perfect putt, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, the rolling ramp, if you got the ball rolling when it hit the ground, um, you got a very different effect than if you were striking it from a standing start. Um, the grains of grass is, you know, the, the strains of Bermuda grass have changed over the years and become much more refined and, you know, super slick and super smooth. And so grain is much less of an issue than it used to be. Um, mm. But again, much less of an issue. It depends on you know, what it is you're actually uh, putting on. So, you know, there'll be areas in the world where you'll play on a heavy grain surface, like Malaysia you know, has it. And you can see it largely depicted by the colouring of the grass. You know, when you look in a certain direction, if the grass is growing towards you, it's into the grain. If it's going away from you, um, you know, it'll be darker you know, when you're putting into it and much lighter when you're putting away from it. And, um, you, you know, it can vary, but, in, but invariably it will follow a certain course, um, you know, towards water, towards the setting sun, that type of thing. Uh, yeah, well, I read Wayne Riley on commentary last night. He was saying that almost in Asia, the, the grass grows in front of your eyes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, look, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've not travelled to Asia, but I know exactly what that, that is, um, you know, we we used to um, we used to rebuild the greens. We used to rebuild two or three greens, depending on the projects for the year. Um, and you know, this was at Sandals uh, in Jamaica, and we used to kill the green off. So we'd have a tournament at Easter. Straight after that, we'd kill the green off with um, good old Roundup. Um, obviously, using something else now because it's I think pretty much a banned list for commercial products. But um, let's say you, you kill the green off, then you remodel the green the way you want to do it. You bring in your new topsoils and then you would literally throw sprigs of grass down on the ground and water it and watch it grow. Within mm -hmm. a couple of days, it's took hold. And within 10 weeks, literally, you're playing a tournament. Wow. And that's, you know, it, it's completely unprecedented. The, the course was more than the greens were more than capable of hosting a tournament at tournament speeds. They were just incredible. And um, I just love that. That was, I mean, I always said that you could put, you know, a telegraph pole, you know, if it was green enough, if it hadn't matured, you could put the telegraph pole in the ground and it start growing again. <laughs> it's, um, you know, so fertile. But, you know, temperatures are right. And obviously, if you keep the moisture content right, grass will grow. You know, it is a weed at the end of the day, <laughs> cultivated weed. But it is, a is that a difficult one for kind of golf club members to to understand, especially in this country? Because when I used to work for England golf, people used to say to me all the time, "We just want fast greens. We want quick greens." The kind of members, not 
I wouldn't say obsessive, but very passionate about wanting quick putting surfaces and having the most quickest greens in the area. And mm-hmm. I can see positives to that, but I can also see downsides. What What are your thoughts on kind of our our green speeds in this country and, and what makes a, a good green? The fastest greens I've played on, consistency wise, um, yeah. were Robin Hood, and mm-hmm. you know that couple of you know about three or four years maybe even five years ago i'm just trying to think now um andy wood was the green keeper there and and did a tremendous job uh he's now envil and doing a tremendous job there and everywhere he goes has a reputation for the best greens he he nurtures them he takes them from where they are you know and there are times where he, he must sort of pain him you know, he's putting on greens of 13 and a half, which is the fastest greens, 13 or 14 even, uh, Robin Hood. But they were playing at weekends, rec- recreational golf were playing on 12 and a half, 13. And, you know, yes, the member will get used to it, but it's actually, you know, it, it, it's, it will stress the greens out. You've got to have a very good substructure to get good root growth, get good root growth. Ultimately, then you've got... Um, uh, you know, you can you can cut the grass down. If you do not have good root growth and good substructures to make that happen or allow that to happen, there's no point in shaving them down because ultimately yeah. the grass is only surviving by its roots. So, you know, the, the bit of grass that sits on top, which, you know, for all intents and purposes is just a few millimetres, is dying when it's exposed, you know, and, and you've got to keep its moisture content and you've got to get, so there's lots of water required. That's cost, you know, obviously from a golf club point of view, you've got to keep the grass surfaces good and, you know, your, your nitrates and all the sort of chemicals that are thrown on there. And, you know, we try to do things organically, of course, but, you know, there's a huge cost to having very, very quick greens. Having good surfaces, full stop, you know, greens do cost money. Um, you know, and sometimes it is a little unfair on, you know, the members' demands of the club that this is what we want, but then they're not prepared to pay for the mem- pay the membership fee that, you know, will, will allow them to do that. So, you know, it is a, you know, start shaving them down and think you've got it right for a couple of years. And then unfortunately, you've got, um, you, you're green to dead, you know, lots of patches yeah. and lots of infections and diseases get in and, you know, and they're just not able to sustain it. So, You've got to build them right from the start or you've got to go through the cultivation period. period. We talked about seasons and, and things like that. How, how is it going to affect things at Augusta this year, being in November? I think, obviously, the course is going to play longer. Um, it yeah. would normally be overseeded with ryegrass at this time of the year. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see whether they do that, whether the course will be green or brown. Um, uh, I'm... I would like to think that Augusta is going to be green, but it's different. It's going to be, yeah, yeah. And so I think Augusta Brown would be amazing. It, you know, it would mess with our heads, but I think mm. it would be amazing to see the fairways um, and the surrounds with the, the Bermuda grass decline. This is where you will see, you know, the, the, the decline take place. The, the, you know, the um, if I remember rightly, the God Bank bent grass green so you know that's fine because they can they have sub air so they're going to warm them up um you know be interesting to see you know, i don't know what the temperature's like in atlanta uh in november um but i'm intrigued to see how how it's going to come about um 
you know, I, I really am. I'm, I, I'm loving it. I'm loving the whole prospect of, of a wet, heavy, you know, nine mile golf course. You know, it's, um, it, it's going to play into the hands of the long hitters. We know that. That means we've always got a chance of his, um, uh, you know, of, of his jacket, you, you know, but then, you know, so now and, you know, there's a whole heap of guys that are out there doing what they do with the with the driver these days. Of course, DeChambeau can't can't knock him and Dustin Johnson. Mm-hmm. So it is very much going to play more into the long hitters um, realms. And of course, if the greens are soft as well, and I know this, they can suck them out, but there's only so much you can dry them out with. Um, if the greens do soften, then it could be you know an absolute you know barrage of birdies, albeit they're going in with fours and five irons as against nine irons and wedges. So. By the power of the internet, the internet tells me that in November in Atlanta, mm-hmm. it is between 18 degrees Celsius and five degrees Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. That's, the, and that, 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 you know, that's exactly what I anticipated. Um, so it's not likely to snow. Um, <laughs> that'd be unprecedented. That'd um, be magical. I want to imagine that. Well, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, well, they had it, they had snow in the desert, didn't they? In Arizona a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, in during the world match play and um you know oh, i remember that yes they yeah. suspended play didn't they? I they did that. yeah snow in the morning and you know ice icy greens in the morning um so yeah it can happen you know it tour, tour venues and of course then i think it was about 75 degrees in the afternoon that was out in short sleeves but you know it's the it's atlanta's not the desert so um you know it's uh, yeah it's all going to be very interesting. I think if it plays at about five degrees, it's just going to be a brutal slug. Well, oh. welcome to winter golf, boys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Get your yeah, just say like in place. Yeah, for one, for one card length. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, that that one, out and the wolf, and, you know, and the, and the hats. It'll be a little bit like playing at the British Open. <laughs> so, yeah, and that'll be, that be good to see. It's all about. It's about the challenge, isn't it? Really, of whatever conditions. I know. I saw a great. Post from Paul Waring in this weekend, sitting with a cold beer on a on a table after a barrage at, at Valderrama. Yeah, sometimes like golf courses, like Rory had at Atlanta this weekend of um, that that kind of I don't know what it was. Adley, what was it? Was it top shot? Was it a chunk shot into the water? And oh, golf at, like yeah. that sometimes. Yeah, 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 amazing. I do. I, Good friend of ours, Steve Astle, put a great post out saying, "Yeah, my game went south after having kids as well." <laughs> so, welcome to our world. Yeah, welcome to our world, Rory. Yeah, it's, it's um, and congrats to uh, him and his wife, of course, for having a baby. Um, you know, and that uh, she's all well, and you know, it will change your life, mate. Um, those of us that have been there will guarantee that it will change your life, and and, and it does change it for the better. But it will change. Um, was was that the lie, Andy? Was that it's been too ambitious? Do you think there? Or? I, yeah, I think there's both in that. To be honest with you, Bermuda's really difficult. I haven't played on the stuff for five years. You have to learn to play it, and these guys know how to play it. But I think he was just being a bit ambitious, um, and he, you know, I mean, he flat out topped it. He, he, I mean, he just didn't get to the base of the ball, um, and you know, I can't imagine you know, at the speeds that we're hitting the golf ball at, you know, in terms of club head speed, that the club getting into the grass causes the ball to drop down, but it could have done. And, you know, it just means that he doesn't get to the base of the ball. Um, but yeah, it looked like he was trying to hit the ball on the green and he really should have just been, you know, sort of wedging it out and putting himself into a position 
um, you know, to play. The, the, the thing I loved about Bermuda is if all sitting down, you take your punishment, you know, mm. and that's the thing I loved about it. Um, you know exactly where you are. <laughs> it is literally, um, it, you know, it tells you exactly what it is you're trying to achieve, it, you know, and your punishment's your punishment. It's, yeah, exactly. It, all sitting down in the grass, you can barely see it, get a wedge out. You know, and as strong as these guys are, they will not get sevens and eight irons on it. So I don't mm -hmm. know what club he had, but he looked like a seven ironish club. He but, did, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a bit of a flatter face club, didn't he? Didn't yeah. have much loft on yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, just get some loft on it, wedge it out, you know, and ultimately then you can, you know, you can still make birdie from from a wedge shot inside a hundred yards. You know, I mean that's that's the crazy thing. And in the end, you you bring in sixes and sevens into play. Um, just crazy, but still. And of course, the other argument, of course, is what you're doing off the tee, bringing the rough into play anyway. Um, you know, he was caught a little bit between clubs. I mean, you know, do you hit a driver trying to, and what he tried to do is hit the driver and land it on the flat uh, versus hitting three wood, landing on the downslope, which would then run down the hill into the rough. And of course, I think he got a little bit of both. Um, he got mm -hmm. it down on the flat, but also a little bit of the, you know, just had a little bit too hot a flight on it. So, um, yeah, it, it, you know, wrong choice of club off the tee puts him in trouble. Wrong choice of club into the um, into the green or out of the rough, and you know, you're in even more trouble. So you, you do have to play this game smart, and, you know. And, mm. and, and back to Valderrama, I mean, you know, the winner wins without making a birdie on the last day. I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I'm, of course, I remember Faldo winning the, the Open Championship at uh, Muirfield, the first one he won with 18 parts on the last day, including a four-footer on the last green. Yeah. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, 18 parts is, you know, is a real grind. It's hard work, that is. Um, but to make bogeys and then still win, is um, you know from shooting over a par round and still win shows you how difficult like that Valderrama was and um, you know I think it's good for golf at times you know I wouldn't want. Do it you think week. those type of courses kind of protect themselves? It's not the I wouldn't say it's the over the longest golf course in the world, but it's the it's got the protection of the again the good architecture, the green surfaces, the the kind of just the, the layout itself. Do you think sometimes we need to go back to those kind of traditional venues? I know they're talking about just in America with places like Cog Hill and places like that as well. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Valderrama defends itself off the tee because it's narrow. You know, of course, it yeah. never was as narrow as it is, you know, because the, uh, the trees have grown. Um, you know, I can't remember how old it is now, but, you know, it's 50 years old. You know, you've got 50 years of tree growth. Um you know, I remember the Belfry, you know, <laughs> was just literally a, you know, an open field because um, mm -hmm. it was, you know, a, a, a potato farm at one point in time. So, you know, it's, it doesn't look like that now, of course. And, you know, you've got 50 years of tree growth going on. Um, so it, it'll always narrow a golf course down. It takes time for course to mature, to look like a proper golf course. Looks like it's been there forever, of course, unless it's a links course. But, um, yeah. you know, our, our challenge is also, you know, I think we try to we, we try to make golf courses something they're not. And I know there was a bit of you know, a few challenges a few years ago when some of the holes were changed and, you know, Savvy was involved in the design and, you know, some of the players didn't like some of those designs. And, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, there was right or wrong in that, you know, I, but, you 
you know, I certainly wouldn't want, you know, wrong, wrong things said about Seve. But, you know, sometimes the designs are not right. You know, we've seen it at the West Course, um, you know, at um, Wentworth, you know, with, mm. with some of the designs. You have to tweak the design. If you completely redesign, sometimes you may have to tweak the odd one or two holes in order to, to get it absolutely right. August has been tweaking since 1930. You know, so it, you know, in order to get it absolutely right, I mean, it, you know, it's. Um, I remember seeing some really old footage about, um, you, you know, the course in its original state, and and what is the eighth hole um, now, par five, which would was I think the seventeenth, if I remember originally. The course was the opposite way around. Um, you know, was um, you, you know very much sort of like a, a raised green with a, a very rough, sharp edge around the back of it. Of course, now it's got mounds that feed the golf ball in, um, you know, if you catch the mounds just about right. Um, you, you know, golf courses evolve and, and so they should. And, um, you know, of course, Augusta is just the epitome of evolution. Just you go there from one year to the next. Of course, you know, I, well, I haven't, but you know, you, you, you know, it's changed because you've been told it, but you can't see where, and with, you know, the amount of times I've had conversations with players and, and guys that have been there, but like, you know, you can't imagine that, you know, this green is where it is, you know, or this tee was where it was. And now it's, you'd never know because the grass just doesn't tell you that there's been any change. So, you know, it's, um, I think it's great to see things like that, but it's, you know, golf courses do have to evolve, and you know that sometimes takes takes time to see and improve the golf course back, um, you know, mm. to its original playing conditions. Because you know, if you you move the soil, you disturb things. So, but, um, but yeah, um, you know, Valderrama, I think, is just its its own unique real estate piece of real estate, and and the opportunity to see tour players struggling to break par in what would be deemed to be a regular tour event i think is great you know um, not every week should be 20 under par but i don't think we should fight it you know i think no. 20 under par is perfectly acceptable they are the best players in the world and if a golf course re by reputation is notoriously difficult and two over par wins it then that's great and they are the best players in the world it means that you and i go around there we can't expect to break 80. You know, because if we did, you know, then we're as good as any of these guys out there. All right, we're not playing in tournament conditions, but, you know, it shows us just how well we've played. Um, you know, I don't I don't see any any problem with it whatsoever. And I think, you know, we've just got to not pander to, uh, to it. But I wouldn't, likewise, I wouldn't want it every single week. You know, because I think it no, would exactly. just grind, it would grind on the players. <laughs> I think the players would get used to it. You know, um, but it would grind on the players and, you know, it would, um, uh, you know, it wouldn't make great television, to be fair. I mean, to be honest with you, I looked at it on TV this week and thought, you know what, why is it, this golf course playing so difficult? You know, like, yes, they firmed the greens up or allowed them to firm up. But, you know, if you could just damp those greens down a touch. Um, would they have would it have changed the scoring significantly? And um, you know, are the greens they don't look overly small? Um, 
Are the greens no, small? Quite big. No, quite big surfaces, to be honest. Yeah. I thought they were going to be kind of posted. So there's a couple. There's a beautiful par five. I think it's around about the fifth or the sixth where yep. there's a, a waterfall cascading in, in front of the green, and that is a tiny green. Mm. That is. That, that's probably not much bigger, Andy, than, than your putter in your short game area at Wishaw, that kind of green surface, and that's wow. for a par five. But it was designed as a three-shotter, wasn't it? Exactly. So it's designed for a wedge to go into it, which is absolutely fine. And when we're taking, you know, longer clubs to get in there, we can get in there with a three wood or five wood or, you know, hybrid or whatever, you know, maybe even a long iron. Um, you know, all of a sudden that target is going to punish you if you're going in from those, from 250 yards versus, you know, 100 yards. Um, you know, and this is, this is where design, you know, and the risk reward element of design comes into it for me. You know, yeah, by all means, make the par fives accessible, but make them three-shot holes. And if they are accessible by the long hitter, then let the punishment be, you know, if you hit the green and make eagle, great. If you miss the green and make double bogey, then fine. That's the risk. Um, and I think that's how golf courses should be. Um, mm. And I think, you know, look, Riviera stands the test of time on the same, uh, same basis. The greens are extremely t- tiny. You know, we've got a drivable par four. I think it's the 10th, is it? Um, yeah. Drivable par four. And players stand on the tee not knowing whether to hit, you know, a, a nine iron and a nine iron or, you know, a, because it's still a, a tricky target to find from 130, 140 yards or, you know, to try and hit the driver and you put it in the greenside bunker and you've now got no green to work with. You, you know, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenally great hole but nobody wants to design a hole like that anymore um you know because it doesn't actually set up it it, it, it there is no gr- easy approach shot into the green unless you've knocked it on the green um you know and i think that's really good golf i think it makes great it makes for great golf but again it's not an 18 hole golf course you know like that it's one hole on a great golf course yeah and, and the caddy, caddy made such a difference around there. and I, I could easily, I think, shot another 10 or 15 shots on my score if the caddy hadn't either given me lines or, in our case in particular, give me certain places to land my golf ball or wow. my start line for yeah. my putt. Because some of the lines that he gave me, especially putting... Well, a lot like, to be said never, for local caddies, never. to be fair. You know, it's, amazing, amazing. Yeah, you know, um, certainly I think at some point I would want... You know, if I was going to play a championship at um at somewhere like St Andrews, you know, I would um I would employ the best caddy there. Even if I had my own caddy on the bag, I would employ the best caddy for two or three days, even if it was the week before, you know, to show us where to go, where we could make our charting. You know, I think yeah. that would be a an invaluable, you know, sort of uh you know cost really to um you know to do that i think that would be you know because local knowledge you can't you know you can't you can buy local knowledge you you know you either put the guy on the bag for the week and give your guy the week off or you know you um you know you sort of do what i've just suggested there and you know i would consider that to be you know a, a very frugal approach um you know because like you say it's all about saving shots at the end of the day because of the knowledge that you know the local caddy has. So, mm. and we certainly had that in Jamaica. You know, our caddies knew knew every inch of those greens. They'd walk them, and you know, for for years and years. And 
you know, knew everything about them. And so they were able to help that player experience, you know, and that's, um, you know, he's, he's absolutely key. They were worth their weight in gold. They really were. I didn't realise that, you know, I watched a really good um, kind of documentary um, with Bill Murray narrated mm. around about, about caddies. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a very good watch. You can get it on all the kind of relevant stores and things. Yeah. And um, I think it was up till the 80s that at Augusta you had to have a local caddy. You yes. couldn't have your own caddy no. on the bag at Augusta. It has to be one of the local caddies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some of the guys... Um, you know, may have even employed those caddies elsewhere after mm. because they, you know, yeah. But um, yes, they were all all um, local uh, caddies. Um, I'm going to say up until maybe about 1980, um, mm. certainly. And, um, you know, and, and of course, they've kept the boiler suit tradition. You know, we had boiler suits and, you know, I mean, it sounds crazy, boiler suits in Jamaica, but, you know, we had boiler suits you know, on our, on our caddies in Jamaica because they were, um, they were their uniform, you know, and, it, mm. you know, a uniform is what a uniform is. They had our logo yeah. on the back and, you know, they, the, the caddies were um, were identifiable they were gr- and, and great. They loved that. They loved getting their new uniform. <laughs> so it was, I think, uh, yeah, I think they had a bit farther on as well. I'll mm. find the picture out. It's on my desktop. It's my background on my desktop of Father Armour. Yeah. I think he's got a boiler, boiler suit on, the gent I had on the bag that day. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> all very traditional, of course. But Exactly. Mm. And, and what we also see at this time of the year is lots of kind of manufacturer changes, new clubs coming to market. Mm. And I know something we've had a lot of questions about, Andy, over the, over the, the kind of podcast that we've done, is, is your associations and your affiliations to certain brands. And this one is if you can give kind of the audience a bit of an insight on, on some of the brands that you're associated with and how that came about. Yeah, I think my, my number one association would certainly be Seymour. Um, you, you know, I took the, the product in, uh, in, in, into my sort of putting academy as it was really getting going. Um, it's going to be nine years in December. Um, and I've not had another putter in the bag since. I've had numerous Seymour putters but not had another brand in there. They don't pay me to, um, to use the products. In fact, you know, I've purchased every single one of the um, putters, but that, that is my long-standing um, affiliation. You know, they, I do sell the product, of course, so, you know, I do make a little bit out of that. But, you know, the product is just such a strong product. It does what it says on the tin. It allows me to align hide the red dot rifle scope technology you've become privy to that as well and and recognize how much that helps you know to get the alignment right my biggest challenge you know was always the golf ball position you know golf ball Mm. used to creep too far forward it's still today creeps too far forward if i wouldn't if i didn't have um you know, my Seymour putter in the bag, I would see that I, I wouldn't, another putter wouldn't allow me to see the red dot because it's obviously a patented part of their putter. And subsequently, because of that, then, you know, I can, you know, immediately identify when the golf ball is creeping forward because we know that creeping forward, then, you know, it's going to be starting to strike with the closing club face. And, you know, that, that means I'm going to be fighting pulled putts. And if that's the case, you know, pull putts are going to be, you know, 
missing left for me i'm a right-handed golfer so you know then i'm going to start to build into the stroke you know an anti-left or an anti-release you know to try not to miss it left and you know i don't want to do that i want to continue to build you know my you know, maintain my consistent stroke so that's you know that there are some phenomenal putters out there um you know by other manufacturers and you know i that doesn't mean that they've not been in the studio it doesn't mean um you know i don't sell them it doesn't mean that you know i wouldn't try them um but they've just ended up in the bag and um yeah. you know that's they've been my you know the number one um you know affiliation like i say for nine years i've been very fortunate over the years to have affiliations with leading brands like wilson uh, and top flight especially um you know top spalding top flight were you know were very supportive of me um you know and and you know i've not been retailing you know in my own rights um for a long time and then and to, so for manufacturers to support you know what i do um without the opportunity to recount you know re, or recover some of that um has been you know a phenomenal uh you know sort of support really and things have changed you know we know that um you know even down to you know to, tailor-made have reduced you know they have their icon players now and don't play don't pay a standard you know sort of platform like they used to um you know other brands like callaways and you know pings will have stepped up to the plate and picked up some of the players that would have ordinarily been with um with tailor-made so you know but for me you know wilson supported me very early on even before i was a pro they used to look after me with 50 percent off trade which meant I could get some fantastic products in the bag for, you know, relatively little money at the time. Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, again, favoured that product, but then moved across the top flight. Um, and then, you know, top flight acquired Ben Hogan. So I always wanted a set of Ben Hogan clubs. So, you know, mm-hmm. very graciously dropped me some of those. And then back to Wilson, um, you know, and I had some of my biggest successes with the Wilson clubs, but, you know, top flight, I had my biggest success with, um, you know, and they supported me, you know, when other other brands were trying to come and get the ball count during, you know, sort of open championships and things like that. Um, you know, and really up to up to today, then, you know, sort of, you know, the, the bag is sort of littered between, you know, apart from the Seymour Putter, between Ping and, uh, you know, Tour Edge, Tour Exotics. Um, you know those particular products top end of the bag you know with the uh, tour exotics and you know the irons and um the uh, you know the wedges at this point in time you know i've got pings in there and largely because they've been prepared to work with me to to allow me to experiment with different shaft offerings and you know the shafts that i supply to to them you know for them to build for me um you know a fantastic set of clubs you know, are not not available in their regular offering. They are very much tour specification shafts, and you know, I get support uh, for that. You know, from KBS, um, and they, you know, for me, they they really do make a fantastic product. Um, it is more than just a tube, um, as we've talked about in the past. I use the graphite iron shafts, you know, steels through my wedges, but um, you know, they've got ter- terrific hybrid and. You know fairway wood driver shaft capability so you know i've at 
this point in time would have somewhere between 12 and 14 clubs in the bag with a uh, KBS shaft in. So, you know, I've got two putters, one with a KBS and one with a Seymour shaft. So um, testing the CT putter shaft at this point in time. And uh, I really like it. So there's a lot, a lot of stability in that shaft. Um, you know, it's an offering that I, I do make available to, to my clients. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I think to, to a large degree, the head of the golf club is the head of a golf club. Um, the shaft is often overlooked by a lot of us. And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate to have known Kim Braley for uh, eight years now. And, um, you know, a very good friend of mine, Paul Steeles, is the KBS uh, rep on the European tour and, and looks after uh, you know, a growing number of players who, who have switched to KBS from uh, the standard brands. Um, you know, and then golf ball wise, you know, Bridgestone has been in the bag now for, I'm going to say about four or five years, maybe. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the thing I like about it is that, you know, it is, you know, as I said numerous times, you know, if it's good enough for uh, Tiger, it's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, it really is a phenomenal uh, golf ball, it, it, and you do know exactly what you get. The new, I've tested the new ball recently, and you know I'm absolutely blown away by how good that new ball is. Um, um, you know, it, it's it, stability, it's control, everything. Uh, it's just superb. When you then go down to the more of the apparel and the footwear, because I know people can overlook footwear. What, what's important for you about the, the kind of shoes that you wear? Um, comfort, number one, has the shoe has to be comfortable. Um, you know, we can't uh, we can't can't get away from the fact that, <laughs> that a golf shoe that's on your feet for five six hours. Um, from start to finish is it has to be comfortable that's the first thing um, and then of course we we you know performance you know is is second is second but only just second it, it's performance is one of those things that a lot of golfers don't actually understand shoe has to allow your foot to move but also has to make it stable mm-hmm. has to allow it to be you know, to have the traction, you know, the support um, to, for your golf swing to function. And, um, you know, and of course, then, you know, very, very, very slightly behind the first two is the, the way they look, you know. So, you know, for me, Duca de Cosmo have, have, you know, really stepped up to the plate, you know, in terms of the design of the footbed and the, and the style of the shoe, you know, works very nicely. Um you know, and what I will say is that they've they've got a mix across the line, so that some of the styles may not suit folk, and some of the uh, the the last the shape of the shoe may not suit everybody. But ultimately, um, you know, there's there's two of the products that that work really nicely um, for me. You know, my my foot fits really nicely. Um, they fit my shoe, uh, my foot, and you know, the shoe looks great. Um, there's a couple of the styles that don't, you know, the lasts don't fit as well. And, um, you know, but they all offer an equal amount of support. And, and you know, you can't, it just means that you can't have every single shoe 
uh, in the lineup. So, you know, but that means there was also a shoe for everybody as well, um, you know, because of the way that they fit. So um, it's, um, it, you know, for me, I just like the style, of, you know, the, the Italian flair of the shoe, you know, is great to look at, but the shoe has to be, you know, comfortable. I, you know, my shoes are on my feet for 10 hours a day when I'm out uh, mm -hmm. coaching, um, you know, so they have to be, you know, extremely comfortable, but extremely practical as well. When I'm swinging a golf club, I want the golf, the foot to be solid, you know, to the ground. And, you know, I, tractional forces and, you know, are, are a major thing in the golf swing. And, you know, not just from a speed and, you know, that point of view, but also to protect uh, from injury. Because if the foot starts to slip, then, you know, the most susceptible part of your body then is your lower back. And, uh, you know, so a shoe cannot really uh, it has to be flexible at the same time can't allow you to slip so because the technology's come on so much because what 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 did you have and did you have the full kind of leather foot joy icons with the, the spine the leather soles because they must have been heavy golf shoes oh they were yeah and I, of course you know we, we aspire to those shoes don't we you know we aspire yeah. to these shoes Seven. you know what was it that sepi was wearing yeah exactly and um you know, I saw I was very fortunate to be working at the Belfry when I left school, you know, 85, 89 Ryder Cups. And, you know, we had the FootJoy reps in. We were selling FootJoy products and, you know, they were keen to get the product into our hand. We had an allowance each year that allowed us to buy, you know, either, you know, a couple, you know, or order a couple of, you know, the more standard shoe and, you know, or, or one of the, um, you know, classics, which they were before they became icons. Mm -hmm. And, um you know, leather shoes. I can remember getting my first pair of leather shoes, um, Foot Joy Classics, and, you know, we had to, they weren't waterproof like they are today. You know, you had these fantastic shoes, your feet got wet, and then they brought Dry Joys out, um, you know, sort of back end of the 80s, if I remember rightly. But, you know, the shoe, the shoe wasn't waterproof, you know, it was phenomenal, but you got wet feet, you know, and, you know, you got this, shoe that was retailing back in 1985 at about 165 pound um wow. a standard pair of shoes was about 35 pound at the time so you know they were they were ridiculously expensive i expected them to last forever um what they did do is end up sort of damaging my foot it just didn't fit and mm. you know as much as i aspired to have this phenomenal shoe you know they just didn't fit and i've wrestled with that shoe for for a number of years well so the, the style of the shoe for a number of years i wanted i wanted these shoes to work for me you know um you know because they're supposedly the best shoes on the market but they just didn't fit my feet and i ended up having surgery on my feet because of it um and uh you know and then i had had some more about five six years ago seven years ago something like that and um you know they've got this waterproof membrane but unfortunately the you know the last just didn't fit my feet you know sorry guys <laughs> foot joy you, you know your 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 shoes and my feet don't match so you know that's not to say that foot joy don't make good shoes it's just the fact that they don't work for me um you know so yeah you, you do have to find the you know a shoe it's not you know don't just follow everybody else because everybody else is wearing them find a shoe that fits you and wear it you know it's as simple as that it doesn't matter what the brand is you know you're into all the other brands that's absolutely fine 
<laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I'm not going to judge anybody for not wearing a, a Duca shoe. You know, I, I can core shoes from Portugal for, for five years as well. And, you know, they were phenomenal, you know, extremely comfortable, again, tractable. Um, you know, and I played Adidas, Adipures, you know, on my feet. You know, you can wear lots of different shoes, but they've got to work for you. They've got to fit your feet and they've got to work. It's as, as simple as that. When you've got them on your feet for that length of time, they're going to be comfortable. No point in taking blisters to the next round of golf because you can't play good golf with a blister. It's a simple one. It's a little no. bit like having a, you know, a, a callus on your hand or, you know, a blister on your hand. You know, um, I don't wear a glove. You know, I can't say I've never worn a glove. I've worn a glove for about five or six rounds of golf in my entire life. I just prefer to wear the leather on my hand. You know, it's a, I, I have known you for so long and I never knew that about you, you know. Mm, yeah, There's a couple of things, really. I mean, it, um, I, I, it's, it goes back to me being a junior, to be perfectly honest with you. And I played the game from a young, young age with small hands. You know, and, and golf clubs didn't, they weren't around for kids back then. And mm. I remember my dad and I were sitting in the clubhouse and I got about 35 blisters on my left hand and, you know, sort of 27 on the right hand. My hands were really sore. And I'd been out practicing hitting golf balls all day. You know, I'd be about seven or eight years of age and I just came, mm. I'm going to say all day, I'd probably been out there for half an hour. But, you know, I mean, my hands were just <laughs> blistered. You know, I felt like I'd been out there a week. But, um, you know, and I remember sitting there with my glass of lemonade, you know, and sort of holding on to the cold, you know, sort of icy cup, you know, or, or um, half pint mug, if I remember rightly. And, um, you know, just holding on to there. And so the pro came in and, you know, Mike Passmore, he said to me, how are you getting on, young man? And I said, oh, you know, good. And then my dad said, oh, show him your hands. So I showed him my hands. And he's gone, oh, no. And the conversation then went, well, you know, do you have kid sized gloves, Mike. And he said, no, we don't actually. He said, um, ladies small would be too big for him. His hands are really small, you know, in comparison, the ladies small just wouldn't fit. And I said, have you got one to try? And he said, trust me, son, you, it wouldn't fit. And, and a, a glove at that time, I'm going to say would have been about four pound 50. Mm. Um, this was back in the late seventies where my subscription for the year for the golf club was 41 pound. That's my first year's membership. Um, and my dad's was about three hundred pounds. You know, put into context now the price of this glove, given the fact that gloves won't last a month. It's going to cost me more to wear a glove than wants to go and play golf. Right, true. And my dad was out of work, you know, periodically around that time, and you know, for, for no fault of his own, it's just the way that you know, sort of business was at the time. It was in the car trade, and you know, it was on and off, and you know, there were strikes and stuff like that. So. You know, he had a period of time, about four or five years, where employment was a little unstable. And, you know, but he could afford to play golf and, you know, and, and the things that went with that was either I could either have a lesson or play golf or have a glove or play golf, but I couldn't afford both. And I remember Mike saying to me, and Mike was not the most God-fearing individual that I've ever come across. And he turned around and said to me, he said, don't worry about wearing a glove. Because God put the best leather on your palm. And from that moment on, apart from the odd occasion where manufacturers have thrown gloves as part of a deal with me, I've never had a glove on my hand. And I did carry a glove with me when I was playing uh, in Jamaica uh, to play one particular tee shot on one particular hole. And that was because it was so hot by the time he'd walked up the hill 
to the um, to the eleventh tee that your hands were dripping. Mm. So I always had a glove in the bag to put on for that particular tee shot because otherwise, with out of bounds left and out of bounds right on a par five, <laughs> you know, on a very narrow par five, it was nigh on impossible for me to hold the golf club. So, you know, that's where we were at. So that was the only time in Jamaica playing in, in you know, 100 degrees of heat most of the time um, that I ever played. I played one shot with one glove and it was dripping wet by the time we put it back in the bag. Or, you know, it wasn't because we put it on the, put it on, you know, hung it off a club. Um, and and I've, I've won a glove to maybe two or three rounds of golf uh, here when gloves were being, you know, effectively thrown at me. So, um I never found them comfortable after learning to play without a glove. I, you know, I built my calluses, you know, the, the, my tough hands and, you know, sort of play golf like that ever since. Of course, now I yeah, don't want to, I don't want to get, day. well, yeah. And plus the fact, you know, I've got two hands, the same color. Um, I don't wear a cap either. So, you know, I haven't got the most ridiculous tan line around my head um, for that reason, even though I've got a shiny bit at the top of the head these days, but, uh, you know, make sure that I get plenty of, uh, Plenty of sunblock on there when the sun, when I'm playing in the sunshine. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, that's you know one of the things about playing golf. You know, we have the golfers tan around the arms and the V neck and all that sort of stuff. But um, I, I do have two hands the same colour. <laughs> so there's a little vanity involved in that. But um, I joke about that. I, I do joke about that. To be honest with you, it's the practical element. You know, and for me, you know, Ben Hogan never wore a glove either. You know, so there was an element of, you know, when you start to look, Fred Couples never wore a glove, mm. you know. So, you know, there are players out there. I know it's not the norm, you know, and it's largely because, one, they're free, and two, because, you know, they, they're protecting their their hands, or actually it's because they've been brought up with a glove. And, and I think that's one of the big deals. I, I can't remember who it was now who said that he ever played the game, learned to play the game of golf again, he'd never play, never wear a glove. I can't remember who it was now. Um we never used to wear gloves. Um, and I think one of the first players, if I remember rightly from the history books, one of the very first players to wear a glove was Henry Cotton. Mm. And, you know, because he used to practice a lot. And, um, you know, he was offered gloves by a, a tailor, um, you know, in the... Um, crikey, my, uh, Becky will be telling me off now for, for who it is that makes gloves. Um, you know, who, who the trade, what the trade is actually called, but for making gloves. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, so the, the glove makers from Savile Row were supplied him with a glove that uh, then became normal and standard for, you know, other golfers as well. But um, it took a, a little while to catch on because, of course, Ben Hogan never wore a glove. Mm. I think, do you think that, again, that's important from a short game perspective as well for that feel element? Well, yeah, I mean, coffee. you know, it was, yeah, um, Bernard Langer carries two gloves. Um, he has a thinner glove for playing shots with his wedges and, um, you know, putting. He has a, he wears a glove on his um, for putting as well. And you know, if you see a glove in his hand in his back pocket, it's his swing glove at that point in time. But he has a swing glove which is slightly thicker, and you know, a field glove, you know, for for the a thinner glove for the field shots. So you know, it's just something that he's always done. Always felt like he should be wearing a glove, but always felt like he. Um, you know, it, 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 it needed to be as thin as he possibly could make it. Um, and of course, then the, the, the thinner shots are not going to tear, oh, sorry, the, the feel shots are not going to tear the thinner glove. Um, 
Gary Player, you know, always said they never put with a, um, you know, with a with a glove on. Um, you wouldn't hold your girlfriend's hand or your wife's hand with a glove on, you know. Um, you know, fair point. You know, I remember hearing him say that in one of his videos. I think it was Golf Begins at 50, if I remember rightly. Um, oh, it does bug me that, doesn't it? It's a pet hate, that is. What's God, that? People who put with gloves on. Just, uh, yeah. Again, it's, or people who don't, I know people's thoughts and connotations, but people in general who leave the glove on throughout the, the round, just leave it on. I think it's a, a good way of switching on and off from your golf shots. And, Especially when you get to the shorter shots as well, help with that feel. Yeah, I think it. there's a bit of, the bigger the bigger pet hate or peeve for me is the the golf professional poncing around with his glove hanging out the back pocket in the clubhouse. That one does it more for me than it does for the. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does. Uh, it's very. It seems to be very much an eighties thing, but there's a, still a few folk out there that do it. Um, Becky and I will be having a laugh and a chuckle over it a bit later because um, mm. she knows who I'm particularly talking about. Um, but it, it, yeah. is that in particular the brand just folded over so you can see an FJ or a Callaway or a, just it's yeah. neatly folded in the back pocket? It is neatly folded in the back <laughs> pocket. Absolutely, yeah. It, um, I've got a confession to make. Right? A very small confession it is. By the way, I have, I'm. We're doing the recording here. I'm actually watching the Tour Championship uh, in the background. You know, it's on mute. But Colin Marikawa is just about to play out of a plug lie with the ball at waist high. Um, you know, it's not, you know, and he holds it. You know, I saw it last night. You know, we talked about it briefly last night on mm -hmm. text messaging, didn't we? He has no right to get that golf ball onto the green, let alone into the hole. But, of course, he does. And this sometimes happens, doesn't it? You know, we get we get to see this. But most importantly, why he's done it, he's made a commitment to get the thing out of the sand. Mm -hmm. He's made a good, solid stroke at it, and he's got it going online. He, he knows that it's got half a chance, and of course, he drops in the hole. Um, great reaction. Chuck the club at the bag. Hands in the air. Um, pretty awesome. It was a great shot. But um, yeah, just as <laughs> you know, if you get plugged in the face of a bunker, you still there is hope. <laughs> it's um, you know, it's not a shot you're going to practice every day, but there is hope behind it so um just to get it out let's get it out yeah get it out first get it on the green it's got half a chance if it's got if it's on the green heading towards the hole it's got a chance so you know clearly you can see that uh you know that that um you can do that but um yeah so i've got to say that was there we did so we'd mention it um you know before we were done so uh there we go throwing it in there <laughs> another amazing pod today just thoroughly enjoy the conversation and the insight because Again, what I, I learn something every time we talk about this pod, it's that about the agronomy on the greens and the, the mm. green surface textures. And that was a real insight today for me. And then finding out that, that you didn't wear a glove and some of the reasons behind that as well. It just, yeah, it's great, great content, great information. Thank yeah, you. That's fine. I just want to finish on that because we may not talk about agronomy uh, at all. We had a, an agronomist while I was actually in Jamaica, a fellow called Billy. Um, I'm trying to think of his last name. I wasn't planning on mentioning, you know, him at all. But, you know, Billy was a, um, you know, sort of, he was actually very good friends with Butch Harmon. So, you know, um, they, went, they went to university together in the States and um, he had some great stories about the work that uh, Butch Harmon did with um, Tiger, you know, in his formative um, part of his career. Um, but, you know, I, Billy, I, I got to manage the, the Sandals Resort for, uh, for about 12 months or so and and 
you know, Billy used to come over, he used to spend time with me and go through the, the plans for the course and uh, changes we were going to make. And he said to me, um, I said, well, what's the secret of working with Bermuda grass? He said, Andy, I worked with an old superintendent because the greenskeepers are you know, called superintendents in the States. He said, I worked with an old school superintendent. Um, he said, no, I remember um, this guy had a real Southern droll. So my, um, I, I will try and do my damnedest to, to sort of repeat it, but because uh, it has to be said really in a Southern droll. He said, uh, he said, I want, he said, Billy, I want you to go and uh, vertical cut the third green and vertical cutting is basically some vertical blades that are um, just slicing the grass and, and with Bermuda grass we've sort of talked about it briefly it runs it runs on um, uh, stolons if you remember them uh, correctly they're basically just a running blade so you know it sort of branches off and just keeps sort of um, growing across the green that's the direction it then starts to grow in and so, you know, this, this vertical cutting or verticutting, as we know it here in the uh, UK, um, you know, just slices the blades up a little bit and sort of, you know, creates new growth as well. And, you know, but it actually creates a more uniform uh, green. So he said to his Billy, I want you to go on vertical cut the third green. And he said, how many times shall I do it, sir? And he said, when you think you killed it, do it one more time. <laughs> I love it. And I said to him, I said, really? He said, Andy, you cannot kill Bermuda grass. Remember, it is a weed. All grass is a weed. How you cultivate it determines what surface you play on. And, you know, it was a real, that was a real insight to, you know, when you think you killed it, do it one more time. Um, <laughs> you, you know, and it's, it, you know, that's ultimately, you know, that we used to do that all the time. It was incredible. Um, you know, especially our, um, you know, sort of nursery green, because that's where we got a lot of our, um, our sort of uh, sprigs from. You know, we'd just go up there and have this sort of, this machine that would tear the grass out and um, it would create this, uh, these sort of sprigs that we could just throw down on the ground and, and wet and they would grow. It was just incredible. So, uh, yeah, there's a little story of, uh, of, of agronomy for you, but uh, those of you that know anything about growing grass, um, <laughs> it's a, just a, um, yeah, there's one for you. So, <laughs> not the easiest job in the world. Teaching folk how to pot is a lot easier, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> he says jokingly again. So, um, yeah, it's been, been a lot of fun, guys. We, uh, we do appreciate you tuning in. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, like I say, feel free to get in touch with us. We do have our social sites, uh, Andy Gorman Golf and, uh, you know, website. Uh, andygormangolf.com uh, feel free if there's anything you'd like us to talk about uh, then ultimately you know fire us a message we will talk about it um, if it means I've got to do some research or going to send Gareth on a mission we'll get that done for you but um, yeah love to uh, know your thoughts so feel free to keep uh, keep them coming back and keep the thoughts coming back in um, we do appreciate you as an audience and we will catch up with you this time next week Catch you soon.